So for her, she starts out the chapter by asking what is at stake in the production of a postmodern ethics. This is a difficult question that demands a cautious analysis. Postmodern ethics does not exist prior to its articulation in specific texts. So it only comes to being in some way uh, as it is made manifest in a sort of textuality or when it finds itself in the form of text. So in this way, there is the implication of or it really lays claim to the post aspect of its title, i.e. it coming after that thing called modernism or modernity. So for Ahmed, postmodernism is here the temporary forgetting of the ethical demand insofar as its name itself ambiguously as a posting of modernity or that coming after. So it is the suggestion, or at least what postmodernism itself suggests about itself, is that there is, or there was something lost in modernity, notably the variation of perspectives that can be ultimately reclaimed in the postmodern movement, especially through the analysis of a certain textuality that at least it claims to allow for a certain demo democratic type approach to come to fruition, or a more egalitarian one, whatever that would look like. So like we discussed in the last, uh, last video here, Ahmed is very cautious about this narrative around postmodernism leading to some kind of benevolent opening up of a certain possibility. Because for her, she always wants us to consider the extent to which our discourse around any such benevolence is itself only another tool operated or mobilized by a certain hierarchical system. So about this chapter, she says the introduction in her chapter here, she states that she wants to avoid making any general pronouncements on how postmodernism deals with the ethical, which presupposes that the essential debate is between universality versus difference and sameness versus otherness. So it's this kind of reductive thinking, and one that postmodernism kind of plays into, at least for her, is the maintenance of these kind of binaries. So the before and the after, the repressed and the emancipated, the universal and the, I guess, uh, individual in some way. that, And how these uh, constructions of these binaries are in themselves part and parcel of a greater system of, of domination. So she jumps into the first section in this chapter by evoking the work of Leotard, specifically the critique that Chris Norris employs against Leotard. Now, Chris Norris is a pretty outspoken thinker against and he's still alive, I think he's still around, uh, against postmodernism, essentially a thinker who suggested that postmodernism failed to account for the extent to which reactionary politics or con generally conservative politics was not properly addressed by postmodernism, and how we must think of a more radical approach or something that deals primarily with you know, the material existence, material conditions of life, and not to burden ourselves by getting lost in the obscurity of what ever postmodernism is for him. So Ahmed evokes Chris Norris's crit critique of Leotard by essentially 
where he where he argues, and, and this is her quoting him, uh, Norris argues in very strong terms that postmodernism is simply a symptom of the present malaise. And then she goes on to say that he suggests that postmodernism in general, and Leotard's work in particular, fails to provide any critical challenge to the rise of new forms of conservative thinking, precisely insofar as it assumes that the concepts of critique and judgment are residual signs of an outdated modernity. Now we can really go into uh, uh, Chris Norris here. I hope I didn't say Chuck before. Uh, Chris Norris. Chris Norris here because he is a pretty uh, pretty big critique of, of Baudrillard, which I'm much more familiar with. And it's to me, his, uh, his critiques are just, they're important to some extent, but one of the most annoying things is that it, it, there seems to be a refusal to engage with the text in their own terms, where he just says, I have, oh, sorry, I'm coming from this background where we see a certain pragmatics to politics or theory that must be realized, and anything that falls outside of that is simply part and parcel of a system of general apathy. Or an acquiescence with a system that you know works in their favor so it's not exactly the best critique of postmodernism I, I find what Sarah Ahmed does here is much better even though at any point when you're dealing with a critique of postmodernism it's difficult to reconcile because postmodernism is a term that was really not taken up by any of these thinkers except Leotard perhaps but Baudrillard, Deleuze, Foucault None of these thinkers were, uh, or avidly claimed that title. In fact, many of them tried to distance themselves from it. So it's, it's a difficult thing to take up, and Chris Norris doesn't do it particularly effectively. So if there are any big Chris Norris fans out there, I hope it didn't offend you. So Ahmed continues to get back on track here. By thinking about, or by considering Leotard's critique of universal judgment, i.e. in his post the postmodern condition, thinking about the opening up of this new sphere, this new sphere that allows for a plethora of voices supposedly to come in. So that sort of critique against universal judgment is in itself simply a uh, participating in the construction of certain binaries between inside and outside. So for, for Ahmed, uh, we need to ask, how does the construction of postmodernism in Leotard's work organize itself through a critique of universalism and ethics, and what particular form and effects does this critique have? So this is in um, thinking about Leotard, excuse me, Leotard's critique of, of meta-narratives, or the grand, you know, explanations for general cultural societal malaise, whether it be class or or, or sex, or gender, anything like that. Leotard was one of those thinkers that wanted to think about the plethora of possibilities that could supplant these meta-narratives. So another text and another example that Ahmed draws upon is Leotard's The Different, which is a uh, really difficult text and it's something I don't understand totally, so uh, I apologize. I'm just going to take Ahmed's work uh, on this. It's a text I've, I've tried to get into, but it's it's very difficult. So in the different, uh, Ahmed says of that that Leotard discusses the Kashinahua narratives as examples of self, small and self-legitimating narratives, which cannot be reconciled into the universal story of man. He argues that a wrong occurs when the Kashinahua are judged in relation to that story, that meta-narrative. 
a judgment which violates their incommensurability or their otherness. Now, this is something that Baudrillard does as well, and for those people that have followed this or seen some of my previous episodes, dealing with uh, The Mirror of Production, Baudrillard's fourth book, there is a lot of that going on, where there, um, there's the location in the primitive peoples, one of the terms he uses, uh, a sort of otherness that stands radically opposed to the grand narratives of the West, which at first glance may appear, at least for us or even for Ahmed, to be something of a, of a good move, like to, to consider the way in which these people stand radically opposed to this system and how there are other ways of conducting or, or organizing society. For Ahmed, it's not so simple as that. In fact, it, that demands a sort of romanticization, a, a reliance on the construction of these people as despite their being constructed as heterogeneous, that heterogeneity then becomes a sort of homogeneity. In their otherness, they are galvanized, crystallized, and solidified in that sphere. So in opposition to the uh, these meta narratives or the broad universal consensus of any sort of of any kind of truth or uh, way to conduct oneself, Leotard proposes this paralogy. So paralogy for for Leotard he takes from the scientific notion of it, where as Ahmed states, uh, science is not determined by anything other than the transforming boundaries of its own production. It is transformed only by the introduction of new and antagonistic claims. So we can see how that would fit in. To the, the discussion around postmodernism being that space for the multitude of perspectives that are antagonistic, that are contradictory, or in the case of the last episode, how Derrida thought about the law as being something that was always butting up against an exteriority to it, which then um, came to define it, came to classify it in that way. However, for, for Ahmed, and this is where she becomes suspicious, is that this form of paralogy is in itself, despite its claim towards a continual heterogeneity, it does in itself demand a sort of reconciliation or for it to be, I guess, reified under the auspices of a certain, um, I guess, totalizing discourse, even if it is a discourse of, of movement. So for Ahmed, Leotard requires some notion of consensus for his own ethics to be feasible, a consensus over the effect that he desires, the production and maintenance of paralogy. His setting up of paralogy against the consensus cannot pragmatically or practically work, as players need to consent to paralogy for it to be possible. So it is in this way that this opening up of this possibility is in itself, or does demand something, ironically, something of a construction or a consolidation of that very perspective. So it's on this note that she turns uh, from Leotard to think about a feminist critique universalism and what that would necessarily look like and how it wouldn't necessarily adopt the same discursive approaches employed by Leotard, at least how he represents postmodernism in, in this instance. So what she does, or what she wants to do, is demonstrate how the question of gender and ethics does not produce a feminist ethics, but in contrast, destabilizes feminism and questions the possibility of any ethical inclusiveness. And this one reason for this, and she states that the category of feminist ethics is often conflated with the category of female or feminine ethics, it in itself, this 
discussion around feminist ethics can supplant an already oppressive scheme, sorry, an even more, or perhaps an even more, but an equally oppressive one. Because it, again, like we saw in the last chapter with rights or with the law, it homogenizes and essentializes this thing called woman, precisely because of the implicit association between feminism and women for some reason, but that being there does in itself raise some questions about a feminist ethics for whom. So for Ahmed, a feminist critique of universalism may begin with a critique of the subject of universal ethical theory. Such a subject, or the ideal observer, in quotes, is masculine, rational, and disembodied. So th we can see this at least in the way that she demonstrated the association between feminist ethics and femininity, or women. There is in those instances a sort of specificity to the uh, feminist ethics, where a feminist ethics is seen as being a subgroup, something of a, a something being derivative from ethics in themselves. So Ahmed wants us to question: What do those ethics, the one that ones that precede the originary form, what does that look like? Well, for her, that it is ultimately, uh, you know, white male, uh, you know, perfectly uh, well classed in a certain way, and this is something we can think of. Thinking back to one of the first examples of ethics, at least rather vulgarly back to Aristotle for this one in the, the Nicomachean Ethics, which is really not, it's n not the same as like moral philosophy, but dealing with the question of happiness or virtue, where happiness can only come about, or being great or anything of that sort, can only come about when someone has attained virtue, we must demand who these are reserved for. Now the Greeks weren't exactly uh, up, to, up to the times with, with their treatment of slaves or with their the owning of slaves or their being slaves. So it's very clear that from, from the onset, from the beginning of this construction of ethics, it did have some association with well-to-do white dudes, quite simply. And that, and that whole discussion that goes into Aristotle totally ignores the conditions of, of life that most people have to live with that do not allow them to attain this sort of virtue, this kind of happiness that he speaks about in this in that in that text. So in this way, this this ethics, the ones the the originary one that precedes the feminist ethics, demands a sort of disembodiment where it's supposed to float above all political issues, and it is not affected nor does it affect those issues supposedly. And in contrast to this, what she uh, she quotes Lynn Arnault. Who argues that such abstractions are impossible, as people's social identity or location necessarily affects their understanding of the world, and hence any evaluative procedure. So it is epistemic in that way, or there is a there, there are variations with regards to how it can necessarily manifest itself or what it can look like. So in that way, we see a destabilization of this abstracted or universal observer that stands above, transcends the conditions of life that hold other people back, notably visible minorities in almost every form. So in a, in a kind of playful twist, Ahmed proposes that the construction of this femininity in opposition to masculinity, where the feminine is that which has connections to the real conditions of life, has connections to other people, while the masculine is that which stands above it, 
She suggests that the deployment of this masculine ideal may exclude from ethical consideration the very value of femininity with its constitutive basis in a notion of effective connection with others. In this sense, a feminist critique of a universalist ethical paradigm may actually align itself with the values associated with the feminine, not as that which women simply are, but as that which is made invisible by the universalist criteria implicit to the ideal observer. So this might seem a little bit odd, because there has been, at least at the time writing this text, uh, a distancing between what was considered feminine and this thing called biological, biologically woman. So how do these things, how, how does Ahmed reconcile these two? How, why does she put them together? Because it would seem as though one of feminism's projects was that distance that. Well, for her, this doesn't have anything to do with essentialism, but it's the way in which women have been constructed historically. And it would be naive to assume that you can simply remove yourself from that because it's, it is continually going on. So in that way, there seems to be, at least for her, a suppression of those things associated with the feminine, right? Which is why, being relegated to the realm of the feminine, they are considered lesser than, derivative, sub-man, or women, in that way. So a feminist ethics for Ahmed may help here to expose how ethics involves fluid and contingent relationships between subjects and bodies. So to put it rather simply and rather bluntly, just understanding the conditions of any given situation, the bodies present in those conditions, and how they affect one another in some way. So it's, it's phenomenological in that sense, and, and phenomenology is something that Ahmed deals with, with throughout the course of her uh, some of other books, like Queer Phenomenology, for instance. But how these, there is a, a sort of giving and taking between the material conditions of existence, whether they manifest themselves quite literally in the physical objects, and in queer phenomenology, she gives the example of um, a writing table, for instance, but also the way in which uh, power relations operate on certain people, and how those people come to shape power relations, and how it goes back and forth in some form or other. So simply by con considering this, which has a grounding in a contextualization, that postmodern thinking, at least how she how she envisions it, would be reluctant to adopt because that would see a certain a grounding in materiality, which is totally out of this world for uh, for postmodernism, how that opens up a certain potential here, a possibility for Ahmed. So what this comes down to, at least in the form of an example, is uh, Ahmed's consideration of the, the sati, or the um, women's self-immolation, or the widow self-immolation if, if the husband uh, dies. So she presents two different approaches, where uh, one by at sorry at Asseter, at Alison Asseter's Enlightened Women, where she argues that there is a universal basis to ethical decisions, and then she also presents Ahmed also presents uh, Gayatri Spivak's um, understanding of you know colonialism. She's a pretty pretty big figure in that realm. So on this problem. Ahmed states that uh, that Assister, As Assiter, sorry, God, uh, argues that against this is against Spivak, is that it is uncertain whether the liberal colonial disavowing of sati, widow self immolation, was emancipatory for women. In other words, 
Asseter argues that the disallowing of sati was emancipatory for women, as a value is more emancipatory than another, if it has the effect of removing a person or group of people from subjugation. So this presented many problems for uh, Ahmed and Spivak, because that Ahmed wants us to question, okay, from where does this emancipation derive? Is it about emancipating women from patriarchal authority, or is it about white women emancipating women of color, in this case Indian women, from the oppression of Indian men? So in her, in, in her words, um, the work of Spivak, amongst others, would complicate this account precisely by reading the colonial decision as the liberation of Indian women from Indian men by white men. In other words, the debate around sati can be seen as the conflict over who had the right to speak for Indian women. So it wasn't about, in this context, listening to what Indian women had to say about what it means to be a sati or to engage in that, that act, but it was rather the placement on these women or construct, the construction of a certain narrative about these women that painted them in a certain way, conveniently placing them on the fringes of society and then using that to locate them as a space for otherness that the white saviors can come and in effect affirm or reaffirm their position of superiority or ethical superiority. So what this comes down to is the recognition of uh, the sort of la God, the taking away of a voice, the um, probably a better word for that, the taking away of a voice from these women which cannot be simply uh, recuperated, or it cannot be simply reclaimed through the postmodern claim to, just by simply saying, yes, you can speak, and we will listen, precisely because there is a certain, in this example, a colonial apparatus that makes it so that these women or these colonized people can't necessarily speak in a certain way. Or when they do speak, we have to interrogate the extent to which that speech is not in the service of, or not coming from these people's own experiences, but is to acquiesce, sort of, please, the, the ears on which it falls, most often the white savior ears. Now, as well, to supplement this, uh, she considers uh, Eagleton, or Terry Eagleton's call for feminism to adopt a sort of universal, uh, universal standard with regards to the treatment of women, which is ultimately, for Ahmed, translates into uh, a validation of the or justification of the mobilization of certain Western colonial apparatuses or neo-colonial apparatuses in suppressing different people, different ways of living, um, essentially suppressing the possibility of variations in, in epistemological understanding to come about, precisely because we, if we construct a sort of universalism around how people are to act, we see we would see the destructuration of any possibility of these people having a voice, because it would be a voice that would be filtered through this colonial experience. Now all this has culminated into, as Ahmed quotes uh, Chandra Mohanty in relation to Western feminism, how Mohanty analyzes how feminist attempts to account for the universality of gender oppression have led to the production of the category of the third world woman within feminist analysis. And then Mohanty discusses the way in which Western feminism has used universal categories to understand gender relations, categories which have actually been derived 
from their own exper experimental frameworks. And we see this echoing today, the discussion around how uh, women who, who practice Islam are, are oppressed and, and wearing the jab or the burqa is, is something that should be shunned upon. And we see that happening in very much in, well, all throughout the United States, but in even uh, self-claimed liberal places like, like in Quebec, in, in Canada, where there are bans placed on the use of, or of women using these, these head garments, which is all, I think, um, a consequence of this construction of a sort of universalism, even a supposedly benevolent one that sees its roots in a feminism, where it's, it has placed a certain bar or a certain standard on what proper conduct is. So from this point, she wants to, she wants to think about otherness. So otherness is being that thing that stands opposed to difference, where difference is sort of tolerated in, a, like, take Canada, like multicultural Canada, for instance. Uh, difference is something that is appreciated under the guise of multiculturalism, whereas otherness is the recognition of a, of a sort of... Um, it's a difference that can't be reconciled with, with other othernesses, where there are things that just simply can't be adopted or taken up. So to, to look at this, she, she calls upon Levinas, Levinas, whose work I'm not really familiar with. Uh, I, just know, I just know about him through, through Derrida. But what, what she says, and this will be all through her, through her words, where she says, the ethical question to the other takes the form of the face-to-face -face encounter. The face at once gives and conceals the other. It both, both constitutes the other's proximity, its nearness which resists incorporation into the side-by-side, -side, and yet always withdraws the other into the mystery of the future. So there is an ambiguity associated with it. And then she continues talking about specifically about Levinas. So Levin, Levinas, who says that, for her, uh, the relationship with the other the intersubjective space is radically asymmetrical. And this, here she quotes him. The other is, for example, the weak, the poor, the widow and the orphan, whereas I am the rich and the powerful. It is here, for me, now this is Ahmed again, that the question of the ethical construction of the other within the narrative becomes uncertain. The other is not reducible to these figures. To make such a reduction is to turn the other into a being whose place can be assigned. Now this is this is ironic because again the postmodern move, or at least the one kind of invoked by Levinas, Levinas, my God, is coming from a I feel like a good place, or it's a recognition of of how you know different ways of being are totally acceptable, but it is one that constructs otherness in certain spaces, locating otherness to be those spaces which can then be inscribed upon which can then be used or mobilized as a sort of outside potentiation for the in-group, or a space that the in-group can, can gobble up and then use to affirm their own position. So, to accentuate this point, um, Ahmed calls upon, once again, Derrida. So for her, Derrida argues that Levinas, Levinas prioritize, prioritizes ethical difference over sexual difference. And this is to quote, she is now quoting Derrida, It is not woman or the feminine that he has rendered secondary, derivative, or subordinate, but sexual difference. Once sexual difference is subordinated, it is always the case that the holy other, 
who is not yet marked is already found to be marked by masculinity, or how that otherness essentially is just a, 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 a zone for which it is inscribed upon. So, in proper Median fashion, she says that Derrida, taking, taking aim at Derrida, Derrida inscribes instead of, um, I guess, um, uh, ethical difference, inscribes his own sexual difference in his misreading of Levinas' text. Derrida simply mirrors for Ahmed the same project that, that Levinas is, is uh, conducting. So in opposition to both Levinas and Derrida, Ahmed suggests that a feminist ethics or a feminist approach must address the particularity of an other by assuming that a philosophy of, the, of otherness is impossible as such. Such a particularity may not simply be figured. So it's about recognizing the extent, at least in how I read this, the extent to which the, the term the other, or how people are constructed as other, then makes them as such, rather than recognizing the other as being certain people with certain needs or certain, certain um, ways of navigating through life, we see them as being simply this otherness, being that homogenous type space that doesn't have an identity beyond its being outside of the inside. So it's on that note that she concludes this chapter quite simply by saying that the postmodern condition or postmodern approaches don't, uh, don't pay enough heed or attention to those material conditions that conduct people. So now I'll move into the third chapter here, Woman. So she begins this chapter by stating that, or asking, how is the relationship between postmodernism and woman come to be determined? And that she suggests, moving on, that we should not assume that there is something within postmodernism that renders its alliance with the feminine automatic. In other words, the relationship, the relation between woman and postmodern is not essential, but it's determined in specific sites of inscription. So she turns firstly to uh, Rosie Bredotti, Bredotti's work. Now, Bredotti is a post-human uh, type thinker, someone I've considered in my own work, someone I disagree with quite a lot. Uh, I have a lot of problems with Bredotti, but I won't get into them here. I might do her the post-human book at some point and lay into it. But in this text, she uh, Ahmed draws upon patterns of dissonance, a study of women in contemporary philosophy, where Bredotti evokes the, the idea of becoming a woman and how the notion of becoming woman following Deleuze and Guattari uh, refuses the law and truth of modernity in a celebration of otherness, of the feminine in this way. So to this, Ahmed states that while the relationship between a critique of identity, thinking, and sexual difference is constructed through the philosophical, I think the relation can be, relation can be seen as a difficult one. What is required is not so much a general theory of the relation between postmodernism and sexual difference, but a closer and engaged reading of how postmodernism has aligned itself with the feminine through the refiguration of woman. So when we think of becoming woman, what woman is that? And to kind of uh, lay down the foundation for what she does in this chapter is question what that woman looks like. Is it a black inner city woman or is it a white suburban straight hair woman? So in this chapter, she comes to take aim at Deleuze and Guattari's Thousand Plateaus, in which, this is her words, becoming woman is a privilege, or is privileged as the becoming through which all other becomings must pass. 
must must pass. Through engagement with the, these authorizing texts, I will pose the question of how feminism itself can theorize the instability of woman as a signifier without losing sight of the overdetermined relation between woman and women as historically constituted, constituted and embodied subjects. So, a thousand plateaus for for Ahmed uh, is a, a text that she, uh, on the outset here, acknowledges has been both praised and challenged chastised by, by feminist thinkers for a plethora of reasons. And reading it, you know, I certainly get that impression that it can go either way. Like, there are certainly things that would seem to align itself with with uh, thought, feminist ideas, but at the same time, there are many things that oppose that. So ultimately, on, on this specific issue, Ahmed says that she broadly supports the engaged readings of Deleuze and Guattari offered by such writers, and that she doesn't just want to dismiss it as, in her words, male theory. To do this, though, she thinks about, or to critique it, she wants to think about not becoming woman as being one term in itself, but she breaks it down, thinking, thinking uh, firstly about the idea of becoming itself. So as she posits, uh, or as she states from A Thousand Plateaus, or what she takes the general thesis about becoming to mean, is that it is a movement between entities, a passing from one to another that is beyond the meeting of two points. Becomings are not imitations, identifications, or evolutions. They are not anything that implies a correspondence among relations. Becomings involve a movement in which the real is the becoming and not the supposedly fixed terms through which that becoming passes. And that they are not, she makes very clear, they are not fantasies. They are very real. This idea of becoming is something, even in Deleuze and Guattari, that has, very, uh, has embodied implications for sure. In Deleuze and Guattari, as, as Ahmed um, notes, they use the language of fascination to discuss becoming. So, moving from these from one zone to the next, or engaging these kind of zones of proximity, one must have a, some degree of fascination, some recognition of an outside or a space in which they are currently they currently don't reside, and see the possibility to move to that space, which would then imply any other number of movements, a sort of fractalization in that very process. But what she states, or what she asks, is that what fascinates is the multiplicity that cannot be simply grasped or placed inside or outside. Fantasy names this fascination. It names this fascination with an otherness which cannot simply be relegated to the outside. So we see where she might be going with this, where it has the, this otherness or this sort of outside is painted with this sort of liberatory, emancipatory brush. It is given that identity from which the inside group can then lay claim to it, a sort of appropriation or philosophical appropriation. We come across two questions then that Ahmed poses in relation to this. First, to what extent do the narratives of becoming discussed in By a Thousand Plateaus involve a fascination with otherness in a way which reinscribes an identity through becoming? And secondly, to what extent do the accounts of these narratives of becoming themselves install particular fantasies of otherness, the motivated nature of the other entity? Oh, and sorry, there is a third. To what extent is the philosophy of becoming itself a fantasy, not in the sense of being imaginary, but in the sense of reproducing dominant social identities through its fascination with otherness? So essentially how, and to put it in what I think would be simpler terms, how is the other consolidated or solidified in their otherness.
and what role does that serve in the maintenance of a certain dominant or hegem hegemonic um, subject position that doesn't so much critique or challenge the onset of advanced capitalism by, you know, mobilizing a sort of becoming narrative or something that resists the homogenizing tendency of capital or advanced capital, but actually mirrors it in some sense, where like advanced capital, like globalization, these subject positions of these subjects do not see borders, they do not see difference, rather they see, or well, they do see difference, they don't see limits, but see others that they can gobble up, that they can make, render productive for their own development or their own becoming. So the narrative around becoming woman does not stop there. In Deleuze and Guattari, this also comes out in other forms, in the difference between the molar and the molecular, where the molar represents the large kind of meta-narrative meta -narrative type figures that come to stand in for other things that make, I guess, make language easier. So this idea of woman as being a molar entity. And then what stands opposed to that is the molecular, where you see it the, um, taking into account the sort of fractalization or the multitude of different, I guess, identities that can fit within a molar sphere. And then moreover, we have the distinction between the majoritarian and minoritarian. The majoritarian represents quite simply that the in-group, which has nothing to do, we must be clear, nothing to do with numbers. You could have a majority of people that are minorities, but how there's that distinction here as well. So the act of becoming a woman is just a privileging or recognition of the molecular as being, or how the feminine has been constructed as being that space of, of ambiguity, of mystery, how that, I guess that, uh, by being inputted or by being force that identity comes to stand in for the molecular as being that multitudinous or being the plethora of different possibilities under the guise of a sort of or by claim laying claim to a sort of ambiguity or a mystery that has been uh, an identity pushed onto women. So this molecularization demands or relies upon a sort of molarization the molar entity of woman in itself. So woman as being a, a molar thing that stands in for many other things that sort of fall under its, uh, that kind of resemble it, but within that, or that how that is a molar entity that is part and parcel of this narrative of illusion, narrative of mystery, of, um, I guess, ambiguity, that comes to represent the molecular. So there is a playing here between the molar and the molecular between the becoming woman and the, I guess, the uh, territorialization. But they are clear, however, Deleuze and Guattari, that is, that becoming woman doesn't have anything to do with, with women in, in real life. So becoming woman is essentially irreducible to woman itself. It does not belong to the woman. It is not a question of the specificity of her writing. Becoming woman is instead activated in such a way that it is transformative in of the social field. The absoluteness of this transformation is indicated by the use of two phallocratic writers as examples of becoming woman. So this is rather funny. So she's a very funny writer. So women are then solidified in in this image of becoming for that molecular type field, which for Ahmed has has been how 
Western philosophy has thought about women forever. So she would be hesitant then to see a kind of, um, I guess, liberatory or emancipatory or progressive account to be found in Deleuze and Guattari because this is just for her uh, part and parcel of the same philosophical system that has continually romanticized this notion of woman in the construction of their ambiguity. So in all of this, women are rendered imperceptible. So in this rendering ambiguous woman, it is ignoring, it is erasing the, the real um, embodied experiences that women have in certain contexts, at certain, in certain parts of the globe, that, well, that is just erased by this, this entire narrative. Women are then forced into a position of catechesis, so catechesis being uh, an issue in, in syntactical logic or, or the misuse of a certain word or something like that, just a general mistake in grammar or in, or in, or in syntax. So from Deleuze and Guattari, then thinking about catechesis, she turns to Jacques, uh, Jacques Derrida's Spurs, Nietzsche's Styles, which is a book that it's been a while since I've read that one as well, but dealing with uh, contemporary criticisms of, of Nietzsche, how Nietzsche can be proclaimed, how essentially uh, in, the con in this context, uh, in Ahmed's context, how Derrida thinks about feminism and feminists in relation to Nietzsche. So she says, in rather um, interestingly, while, it, while I agree that Derrida's text deserves a closer reading, I am concerned about the status of his accusation against feminism and feminists. While there is inevitably violence in judging any text without reading it, I must also point out here that Derrida's response to feminists, or feminism in general, very rarely proceeds through direct citation or evidence of actual reading and engagement with feminist work. So it's really, and that's really symptomatic of, a, of a, the entire field of, of philosophy or theory. So often you can read bibliographies that include very little, if not any, women and of those women, that, uh, those that don't even engage with, with feminism, let alone men that engage with, with feminist thought, it, it's just considered like subpar, like bad philosophy. So how, and, and taking Derrida to task not simply on the content of, of Spurs, but on the, on the form and, and what form it necessarily takes, notably, or what, what content it draws upon to make its claims. So what Derrida tries to do in this project and what Ahmed picks up on is, is to decipher the inscription of the woman rather than position her as some mythological flower which we pluck in order to dissect. In this sense, the woman that inhabits the text of Spurs does not properly belong to either the proper names of Nietzsche or Derrida, but occupies the intertextual, potentially endless space between them at the interval of their very textual relation. She cannot be attributed to either, insofar as either name functions as an indicator for an exhaustible conceptual and semiological space. So it's how the, you know, even the attempt by Derrida to, to challenge at least the way in which a woman is constructed in A Thousand Plateaus, or that, that way to construct women, is in itself a construction of women, precisely by the, the lack of uh, scholarly engagement with, with, with women, and that, you know, having the white man tell women what they are, what they can be, but simply at the level of the, of the discourse as being that within, still within Derrida, or within himself and Nietzsche. 
So still in this move, we can see uh, the remnants of this sort of thinking, where Ahmed says that this is represented as the beginning of history, a narrative, and also the beginning of woman. Quoting Derrida, Distance, woman, averts, truth, the philosopher, to which Ahmed continues, But why is the beginning of history and narrative already defined as woman? Why is history already gendered in this way? The asking of such questions introduces the context surrounding philosophy itself, the power relations that involve the definition and demarcation of who or what is the subject and object of a discursive and philosophical exchange. So women still retain that degree of signification here that men stand outside of and that men like Derrida or like Nietzsche are able to uh, iterate, are able to enunciate this idea of woman. Now all this comes down to in rendering the woman still an image is the effacing of, of women's experiences in the real world of women's voices. So although this is an attempt or could be read as an attempt to uh, speak to the uh, Western philosophical tradition of constructing women in a certain way, Derrida does the exact same thing, at least according to Ahmed, in constructing woman as a certain thing, uh, solidifying her in her image. So then she moves into the next her, her next section here, uh, feminism and woman, and what how those two things are reconciled, where she starts out by saying, in the previous two sections, I have provided careful and close readings of a thousand plateaus and spurs in order to demonstrate the difficulties sustained by narratives which assume the figure of woman. So Ahmed's critique of these forms of postmodern uh, challenge are for her not a call to return to a basic biological centralism. It demands actually another turn. And this is a, this is a turn that she says that uh, is a return to why feminists themselves have engaged in a substantiative critique of both essentialism and referentiality in theorizing women. The strongest critique has come from black feminism and the recognition that what is meant by woman as such usually refers to white woman. So when we think of becoming woman, when we think of woman via Derrida, what woman is that? As I, as I posed this question a little earlier, it is most often this idea of the white, thin, able-bodied, um, suburban, straight-haired woman that comes to stand in for all these other things. So Ahmed, to emphasize his point, quotes Audre Lorde when she states that um, as white women ignore built-in privilege of whiteness and define women in terms of their own experience alone, then women of color become other, the outsider whose experience and tradition is too alien to comprehend. So it's it, in a sense those women come to stand as the minoritarian type figure or as the molecular type figure in relation to white women who are able to bathe in a certain privilege and a certain comfort relative to that of the, the white man. So we are caught, however, because we need to, in our words, qualify our arguments by a recognition that essentialism is not a conceptual horizon that can be simply transcended. So it is not as though certain women have certain attributes based on their, uh, their, their race or their gender or their sex, but rather are things that, um, or is a thing, essentialism is a, is a thing that must be transcended, that must, we must move beyond that. So she says that she, well, she would add here that essentialism is itself impossible as such. Any positing of pure essence always requires contingent and non-essential details and so is always already contaminated by its other. So postmodernism and feminism do share some, some indubitable affinity at this point, 
but where they depart is their construction of this thing called woman and what it necessarily looks like. So while they would both be, that is, feminism and postmodernism, eager to criticize any possible essentialism, feminism takes even postmodernism to task on its construction of women in a certain way. So in concluding this chapter, she uh, evokes the work of, of Luce uh, Irigaray, so where, she, where Irigaray suggests that there is always a connection between the body and language, where they, they negotiate one another. So it's not as though one of them is originary, one of them, and, and one of them is derivative, but rather how these two negotiate and form one another. So the body is that which not only utters language, but is a very much a part of it, and how language is very much a part of the body, and how these two things oscillate back and forth. So it's on that note that um, Ahmed finishes this chapter by just asking us to think about the possibility of these two things meeting where there is the essentialism argument, which is simply ridiculous, but how the postmodernist solution to that is, is often in itself, or does often in itself, borrow and still implement many of the same theoretical forms of oppression or, or hierarchical privileging that is found in the essentialism debate, which is what she's trying to consider here. And it's, because we don't want to just that she's trying to find an in-between space because that is a space that has often been relegated to women and it would be it would be ironic but in a sense it's about thinking about how it's thinking about how the body or this idea of like essentialism truth does work in accordance with language with the postmodern with textuality and how they inform and negotiate one another but she asks us to always consider you know the role of power relations the role of context the role of real people, real lives, real voices, and how those things can be affected by these uh, narratives or these constructions of women in postmodernism. So it's on that note that I'll, um, I'll tune out here. For any of those that listen this far, thanks a lot. I hope that it was, this has been helpful at all. This is, um, like I said in the last episode, this is a difficult text. I, I, have, I have trouble with it. Um, she's a brilliant writer. Yeah, for any of those that made it this far, if you have any problems or want to add anything or complaints or you want to say I'm dumb, do whatever you like. But keep it cool, and for now, take care.